What's up, Story Geeks? Thanks for joining us today on the Story Geeks podcast. I'm Jay Shear, author of the time travel novel Time Slingers. Today, we're digging deeper into Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Joining me today is basically anybody listening because uh, I don't have any co-hosts. We actually recorded this show last well, week, about a week and a half ago. It was supposed to come out this week. We recorded it live, but we had uh, massive technical issues. And so Sandra Demas and Justin Weaver and I had a show. We did it as a live show. We planned to release it on the podcast. Unfortunately, uh, the file completely uh, died. And so therefore, it, we were not able to get it back. And because of that, I am doing this live show instead with all of you. So I'm going to be asking these questions. They're very deep questions. This is one of my favorite podcasts probably that we've ever done. Probably one of my top 10 podcasts because it goes really deep. This is a really important film. Lord of the Rings is a really important film. Um, at this point in time in uh, the historical record, this is the, the uh, I don't know if it's going to be the midpoint or the start of the coronavirus uh, outbreak. And so it's good to dig it, dig deeper into the, some of the stories that can give us hope and give us peace. And Lord of the Rings uh, does that for me for sure. So I hope it does that for you as well. I appreciate you listening in. I do want to interact with you, so make sure that you comment in the um, in the in the comment section, and uh, that way we can interact. You can ask me questions. I will be asking questions. I have uh, Justin Weaver and Sandra Demas's notes that I'm going to be going through. Um, hi, Mary. Mary's here as well, so thanks for joining me, Mary. I'm sure we'll hear some really good insights from her. And I'm just going to go through my own thoughts. I'll go through some of their notes. Some of the I'll try to capture some of the discussion that we previously had. But you're only going to hear my voice uh, today. Today you're only going to hear my voice. But um, hopefully you will hear my voice talking about your answers to these questions, so that we can interact with one another. Uh, thanks for listening in. The Story Geeks podcast is produced by the Reclamation Society, and as I've been mentioning, we're recording live, which means that we'll be interacting with you all. Normally, we save this. We save interaction to the, we do the show and then 20 to 30 minutes after the show we'll interact. Um, not so today. Today we'll be interacting throughout the entire recording. So feel free to enter your comments and I will, um, along the way, I will go ahead and re respond to you and have a conversation with you as much as I possibly can. Um, you can also join our Story Geeks Club. And if you join, uh, by the way, it's free to join our club and it's a Facebook group. So go to Facebook, type in the Story Geeks, ask to join. We'll let you in totally free. If you join at one of our VIP tiers, so for example, Mary is in one of our VIP tiers, we give you uh, prioritization in our live shows in terms of responding to your questions and comments. So just know that that's out there as well. I would love for you guys to support the show, uh, especially at times like this when you're just really not sure about what's going on in the world. Uh, your support is super meaningful to us, uh, and we really appreciate it. So thank you for that. Before, so without any further ado, I'll stop explaining what happened and we'll just jump into these questions. Hopefully you will find them as deep and meaningful as I found them in the podcast as I recorded last time with Sandra and Justin. Um, and hopefully I can recapture some of what we really liked talking about with one another in that show. So let's dig deeper into the Lord of the Rings, speci specifically about religion, spirituality, and philosophy. So one of the key elements in the setup of this story, in the Lord of the Rings, all, all three stories, whether it's the theatrical releases, whether it's the books, whether it is the extended editions, um, one of the main elements, one of the key elements revolves around power. 
Now, Google defines power as the ability to do something or act in a particular way, especially as a faculty or quality. It also describes it as the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. So if you think about Lord of the Rings, it's very applicable. Many of the characters in Lord of the Rings desire power. And the film tells us that men desire power. I think that that happens in the Galadriel um, uh, voiceover in the beginning. Men desire power, she says. Now, I think maybe the elves desire power too, but we'll, we can talk more about that as we go. Um, there are three rings of power for the elves. There are seven rings for the dwarves, and there are nine rings for men. So my question to all of you listening, the question that I'm going to dig deeper into now as well is why is power so important and why is the concept of power so central to these films? And Sandra and I had a very similar response to this question. So I'm going to go ahead and, and go through some of what she responded to and then you'll hear kind of my responses in that as well because we kind of shared a, a perspective on this. And she talked about how power allows us to live autonomously. We can have more freedom um, and live the way we want to live because we have power. She also talks about establishing a legacy. So for good or evil, um, doesn't really matter, but you can establish a, le uh, a legacy when you have power. You can do things that other people don't have access to. Now, of course, there's a cost to that power, but um, as we think about absolute power and one ring that would rule them all, then that saying can become really true in the Lord of the Rings context because who has the one ring to rule all the other rings? Sauron has that ring. So of course, absolute power can corrupt absolutely in this case. Um, and she mentions that we have even see that play out in a lot of the ideologies of dictators that have uh, come in the past. Um, so even, even if you look at Lord of the Rings as a commentary on World War II, which to a large extent it is, um, you can look at Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, uh, and all of these things, all of these leaders who were seeking power. Um, even, even the Japanese at that time were seeking power. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing a ton of other people who were actually seeking power during that time. We even call the two factions that are fighting against one another, the Axis powers and the allied powers, right? Like the, there were these, there was a giant call to arms and everyone was either seeking to defend what they had or they were seeking to take what somebody else had. And that speaks to what power does to people. Uh, my answer to that question, so phenomenal answer, I think, from, from Sandra. My answer to that question was very similar um, because power is this thing. Now, this is something I actually didn't talk about on that, that show, but is, a, is another perspective that I'll add to Sandra's. Um, as we get into what power means, I don't believe, I've said this on the show before, but I don't believe that uh, people who don't have power aren't corrupt. I don't believe that. I believe that what happens is we identify corruption more, the more power and the more influence someone has. So if, if I have very limited influence or I have very limited uh, power, that my corruption isn't very apparent to a very wide number of people. Uh, if, I have, <laughs> if I have lots of power or lots of influence, just think about how many people I can impact, especially with the natural corruption that occurs in me because there's something that I want. And so my answer revolved a lot of, similarly to Sandra's, revolved a lot about power is the human being's choice to put themselves in the place of being the pinnacle. Power is the place of the human being's 
desire to play God. It's hubris. Power is I want my will to be done. Uh, if you ask me what would what would make Jay Shear feel most comfortable, well, and then you gave me ultimate power, and I had the capability of making myself feel the most comfortable that I could possibly feel. That is a lot of power, and I'm going to probably act and behave in ways that are most comfortable to me based on my own set of experiences, based on my own ideologies, my beliefs, my biases, and all of those things. And so I think that part of um, the whole story of Lord of the Rings is to, to assess how we see power, to assess how we desire power, and to fight against some of our natural urges because we don't want people to be comfortable um, we don't want them to seek comfort and to be powerful so that they can seek their own comfort, but we want the most amount of people to experience, uh, comfort, I think. So I think that's a, that's a really big deal. Justin says that he also mentions that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Uh, he talked about, he talked about the same thing, the ability to bring about your will, what we want, and then inherently the depravity of man and the Lord of the Rings deals a lot with extensively with the depravity of man and how that affects both uh, all of the people around them, but even the, the, the individual characters themselves. So it's a good, it's a really good question. He asked the final question that Justin asked is, is power fundamentally good or bad? And I don't, this is an interesting thing. If you give an imperfect person power, then that imperfection when it shows up is obviously bad. But if you were to give a perfect person power, then it wouldn't be bad at all. So is power fundamentally wrong or is power fairly amoral? It doesn't have good or bad until people apply it. So that's a question that you can think about yourself. I'm going to read one of uh, Mary's uh, answers to this question. Mary says, I am fortunate to have a wonderful father who led our family in a positive way. I saw my mom occasionally defer her way to his way because she truly believed that he had the best interests of our family in mind. And she also says, I'm fortunate to be married to someone I trust as well. Uh, where I struggle is our current administration. Well, there you go, right? Um, is so, so the question would be, and I would the question I would turn back to you guys as you listen to this, right? And whether or not it's the current administration, whether or not it's previous administrations, that that part of it is definitely something we need to contend with living where we live, right? And maybe you don't live in America, maybe you live somewhere else overseas. You have to contend with, well, who did I, who am I giving power to? The question I have is, isn't it true that no matter who you give power to, there is going to be some form of corruption that occurs? It's inherent. It's inherent in human beings, I think. I think Justin's question about are we inherently good or bad or are we depraved is a really, really good question because I personally believe you can give power to any human being you give power to in the face of the earth right now will in some way, shape, or form abuse that power. Some to, some to more, some to a greater degree, some to a lesser degree. But that will indeed happen. And it happens in various ways. It can be lying to people. It can be choosing to, to benefit one group of people over another group of people, which we'll get into. But there's all these ways that power can can be um, manipulated and power can be, oh, like uh, you can use power inappropriately over other people. Uh, Mary also says, it's it's hard to trust someone who may talk the talk, but definitely doesn't walk the walk. That is very, very true. Another question I would ask is, how hypocritical are each of us? And what, what part of the hypocrite scale are we on? 
and how can we build things around us, right? So if power is going to exist, power is going to exist. That, that's the thing. Power is going to exist. People will give power over to other people. The question is, uh, how do we hold those people accountable as well? And what are the systems that we put in place around that? And let's talk about one of those systems. And the second question, uh, continuing this theme of power, let's talk about the ring of power itself. So Sauron creates this ring of power. Um, what does the ring of power represent and what gives the ring its power over people? This question to me is one of the most fascinating questions that we um, are able to, to dig deeper into. Because I think that Tolkien, in his uh, deep appreciation for uh, spiritual perspectives, really went deep with this ring of power. And I really enjoy this conversation. Justin talked about it representing different things to different people. So the ring of power, when Frodo gets it, represents something different than when Aragorn gets it right to them versus Galadriel too. Like if they were to take the ring, they would have different things occur because they would suddenly become uh, powerful. Justin also talks about it fundamentally being an unethical shortcut, a slippery slope. Um, the Does the end justify the means? Um, it Well, you know, some people could make that argument. If, if Gandalf was to take up the ring, much like you would imagine if Sauron or um, Saruman took up the ring, if Saruman took up the ring, he'd be taking up the ring uh, maybe to do something wrong to begin with, but so that the end could justify the means. That would be kind of his perspective on it. Um, so it's interesting to see how the different characters uh, react to that. I think in my answer to this question, I think that the ring is one of the, I'm going to use a, a pun here. I think the ring is one of the most powerful concepts that uh, Tolkien plays with. I see the ring as ba the basic definition of what humans are tempted by. The basic definition of what human beings are tempted by. So we just finished talking about power. This is the ring of power. What am I talking about when I say the basic thing that um, human beings are tempted by? Well, I'm talking about the fact that we want to control things. We want to be the most comfortable. I talked about this in the previous question. If you gave me the power to do so, I would then do so in a way that benefited me first and foremost. Again, I would, I would play the role of God, if you will. I think that the essential human condition is to want to be God. We want things to come about the way that we want them to come about. We want to be in charge. We want our will to be done, not the will of somebody else, right? Uh, not the will of a higher power, ultimately. I mean, in our in our best moments, we can say, oh, no, no, I want the will of the higher power to be done. Or I want the leader that I've entrusted this to, to for, for their will to be done, because I realize that even though it's not best for me, maybe it's best for other people. In our best moments, we're, we get there. In our worst moments, we want to win over, even at the cost of other people. So I think the ring of power represents two things. One, it represents our own internal uh, issue. Justin may have called it like our own uh, internal depravity. Why? Because we want to use the ring to be for our will to be done. We want that to happen. And so it represents, if you will, individual desire to do to have things turn out the way that we want it what them to turn out you could call that individual sin it also represents to me something beyond that it represents 
the darkness that exists in the world. And it represents the darkness because ultimately who created this, this ring of power? It was Sauron. And Sauron's purpose is to use it to basically destroy and, and, and commandeer the world. Um, and in fact, all of the leaders of the world are subject to it because the ring of power can subject all of the other power rings underneath it. So not only is it the individual's desire to do things, but also it is the darkness that is inherent in the world and the things that go wrong with the world represented through Sauron and his minions of minions and minions of people. So I think that the ring is such a powerful concept because if it was just a ring that was a ring of darkness and it did not impact each of the central characters in the way that it does, then we could say like, oh, okay, it's just kind of like an, uh, an item of power. It could be like the, the Infinity Gauntlet if you were <laughs> comparing it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but it's not that because it is inherently desired. So, so notice the Infinity Gauntlet, um, people want it, but only really people who uh, want power want it. A lot of the people are able to resist it. The, ring, the other ring is not that at all. If, if Aragorn were to touch it, he doesn't touch it. If he were to touch it, or if Gandalf were to touch it, or if Galadriel were to touch it, they would inherently fall victim to its, um, its power over them. And so they're trying to, to push that away and aside, uh, which I think is really fascinating. I think Tolkien did just an amazing job there. Moving on to the next question. If you've got any thoughts on that question, throw them into the comments. I'm glad to read them. A surprising element of Lord of the Rings is how the films at times become horror films. Why does horror blend so well into fantasy and what elements in horror are also found in fantasy? All right. So we're going to talk about horror and fantasy. Um, Mary points out that the ring magnifies every sinful part of our own nature, which is true. That's what happens to the characters in the film. It draws out each character wants a different outcome because it's drawing out the internal, uh, the internal things that that character wrestles with. So that's very, very true. Great point, Mary. So yeah, back to this concept of like horror and fantasy and how these two blend together. Well, it's, it's, it is hilarious because Sandra is our horror queen and she says, uh, I wouldn't categorize the elements of Lord of the Rings as horror, um, but that may speak to her tolerance level for horror. Um, horror really evokes fear and blends wonderfully into any story, including fantasy. Um, it's all a matter of raising the stakes and fear can certainly raise the stakes. So, uh, threatening the life of someone on a dangerous journey. Um, you, there's the, this feeling of fear, being scared, but you're also motivated to get through it. So those are some of the ways that Lord of the Rings does um, dive into horror elements. But but Sandra was very, <laughs> very uh, pointed in her, I don't even think this is necessarily has anything to do with horror. And that's because uh, Sandra is, a, is an expert in horror. And so she sees uh, a lot of these horror films and, and, and can speak to what's involved in those. Justin talked about horror and fantasy movies and the need for the audience to suspend their disbelief. So uh, you know that as they're filming a horror movie and, and after a jump scare, the director will basically be like cut and everyone will laugh and they'll have like a good time. They'll hug each other. It's like, and, you know, and for example, if you ever watch a behind the scenes of filming a horror movie, you know, usually those, those movies are heavily filtered with camera filters so that, you know, they might even film something in the middle of the day. And it's really not as scary for the people creating this thing. 
Um, but once you put the filters on top of it, once you put the themes on top of it, once you put the, um, you know, the suspense on top of it, once you, once you just show us this one tiny little frame and that's all you can see as opposed to seeing the entire room, uh, then it becomes uh, a lot more scary. So, um, Justin talked about orcs and Urukai that are not real, but they're kind of the things that you see in this genre that develop a fear that you might feel. Um, and I think, so I, the reason why uh, I even included this question at all, because I did, <laughs> um, was that I, I find a lot of horror elements in fantasy frequently. And I think it, uh, Sandra is correct in saying that it's all about fear and it's all about um, fantasy is a lot of times about dealing with what is good and what is evil in the world and trying to figure out how we can defeat evil in the long run, which is why the term you catastrophe that we talked about with uh, Andrew Peterson on that podcast is so fascinating in the Lord of the Rings. Cause Lord of the Rings is the, one of the first, you know, really big famous fantasy uh, series to come out in, in novels. Um, I'm sure that there were others, but it's one of the most, most famous in that time frame, And, um, and yet it's a you catastrophe. It's, it's the, there is the hero's journey, but at the end of the day, like the hero doesn't actually do what the hero is supposed to do to accomplish what the hero wants to accomplish, which is which is really fascinating. I find a lot of elements of horror in fantasy because I see things like when Bilbo reaches for the ring when when Frodo is holding it to him, and there's just like jumps. There's a little bit of a jump scare there, and it's just dealing with the, with with characters that look scary that are. Um, I was talking about on the podcast when we when we did this live. I was talking about the fact that it was I felt a lot of um, anti beauty. I don't know that it's ugliness necessarily. Um, it depends on how you define those words. But I see like anti beauty. It's like these are the things that are dark and these are the things that are um, disturbing to us uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that that is works its way into some of the horror elements as well. Mary brings up that uh, she sees. It's fantasy and horror separately, but she can see that scary fantasy and sci-fi uh, and tolerate it because it's fake. But uh, she thinks that the typical horror films seem far too real. And I, I actually agree with that hundred um, percent because, and she also points out, this is really good too, that usually good triumphs over evil in fantasy, but not necessarily always in horror. Think of all the horror films that ended with, well, the thing's still out there, right? Um, so there's, there's sort of a different uh, approach there, which is totally accurate. Um, I like horror elements in fantasy, but I'm not a horror fan. So again, for somebody who's a big horror fan, you might be like, what is he talking about? There's no elements of horror in fantasy because it's a different, you're looking at the genre from a different um perspective and I totally get that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next question, which is all about uh, this fact, this uh, historical occurrence that I find fascinating. A subset of Christians have historically derided Harry Potter for its use of magic. And yet Christians have long held that Lord of the Rings has important rich themes. And so I kind of wonder, like, what's up with that? Are there differences, if any, between the two universes? And what's going on with issues relative to magic and how that relates to religions or spiritual perspectives? Uh, it's obviously, um, Tolkien was obviously a deep believer in important themes, and yet he includes magic in this. 
Uh, Mary points out a lot of people love Wizard of Oz too because of the the magic elements of that. So what made Christians criticize Harry Potter, but not criticize Wizard of Oz, but not criticize Lord of the Rings, and not criticize Narnia? Justin pointed out that, and Sandra kind of talked about this too, sometimes when the words witches or witchcraft are used, that is is an instant trigger for people. The other thing that can happen is that it depends on where these stories take place. Sometimes we can say, oh, well, that's just happening in Middle Earth, and I guess that's just how things happen in Middle Earth, whereas that's not the way that we should treat things that happen in the real world. Um, and so, for example, Harry Potter takes place in large extent in the real world as well. I, I acknowledge those comments, and I agree that that's part of it, for sure. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. I think that because Narnia also, some of the later books do take place in the real world, right? So it's not just it's not just uh, Harry Potter. Narnia does the same thing. There's a, there's a crossover that happens there. Um, I recognize people's hesitancy to want to endorse things that they feel like could be evil or something, right? But I think that we're not looking at the stories and how the stories are trying to draw upon the truths that are that are being experienced they're instead trying to be fantastical they're trying to be uh different in ways that draw us into the story from these fantasy elements and so i think that like harry potter for example is being unfairly critiqued in this regard i do not think that harry potter's view of magic is inferior to the view of magic or the inclusion of magic that we might see in Lord of the Rings or Narnia. I think that we unfortunately put a filter on the way that we ingest or engage in content. And a lot of times we put that filter on based on what we know or don't know about the writer of the story. And I... And we're seeing that more and more. We see that a lot now. I think there was a recent book that was heavily critiqued because of the person who wrote it not having any of the experiences of the of the characters that were in the in the in the book itself. I'm not saying that that's good or bad, but when it comes to because I think that there's there is a real world application where if you're writing about real world things, there is some concern I have about that. Where I'd be like, well, why are you writing about this when somebody else could write about it better and tell a better story, right? So I, I, I would put that out there, but. When it comes to magic, I mean, these things aren't being, uh, these are fake. These are these are made up things that we're all dealing with. And so I, I feel like when it, when it comes to the critique of magic utilized in geekdoms, fandoms, such as Harry Potter, the critique is unfair relative to how we treat other areas. And so I just don't, I don't think that we're, we're treating those authors fairly. I don't think we're treating those those stories fairly either. Uh, Max says, hi. How you doing, Max? Um, so what do you guys think? Have Christians been treating Harry Potter or like fandoms in a way that's unfair comparative to Narnia and Lord of the Rings? Um, I would say that they have, and I think that they're doing that based on the author of the story, not necessarily the inclusion of magic um, in the story itself. So I would put that out there. What do you guys think? Do you think it's fair? Do you think that there are issues there? What does that look like for you? That's personally what it looks like for me. 
Um, I'll move on to the next question. If you guys have comments, I'll I'll catch up with the catch up with you in a minute. Uh, the, we had a discussion prompt from um, what's up, Raju? Nice to see you. Um, we had a discussion prompt from at Woopert123 on Twitter. He's a follower of the Story Geeks on Twitter, which, by the way, you should do too. Go follow us on Twitter at the Story Geeks. Real easy. Um, he sent me an article written by Demetra Femi titled, Was Tolkien Really Racist? Was Tolkien Really Racist? And I, I actually found like it was a very balanced, well written article about Lord of the Rings and race. If you type in Dimitri, uh, sorry, Demetra Femi, Demetra Femi, F-I-M-I, uh, and then type and then ask him and then uh, type in was Tolkien really racist? Um, go ahead and do that, and you will find this article. Very well written article about Lord of the Rings and race issues, and it showcases some important criticisms, but also defends Tolkien on many points. And also, I'll talk about that a little bit. But my question to you guys is: Is Lord of the Rings racist? Is Lord of the Rings racist? So before I jump into my answers, I'm going to go back to the previous question because Mary Mary made a comment here. I think a lot of Christians who have never read the books have uninformed, poor opinions of the Potter series. I think that that is highly likely the case. A lot of times when we see, whether it's films or whether it's books or whether it's whatever it is, when we see them critiqued, a lot of times it's by people who actually have not invested in the material. Which, as a writer, I you know I tell stories all the time. I am very disappointed in this fact um, because I would rather have you read the work before you judge it. Uh, you know, a lot of writers deal and deal with themes. There is uh, in a, in a book that we're coming out with. Um, it's a full cast audio book, but it's also a um, going to be a novel. It's called Death of a Bounty Hunter. We're coming out with it soon. In this in this novel, um, I have characters who are very racist. I never say that those characters are good. <laughs> those characters are not good. You should not be a racist. If you're a racist, you're a jerk, right? Um, so, but that is a that is a theme because the lead character has to deal with that in the world that the lead character is in. And so I think that Mary's right. When we we should engage in material before we deride it as being something that it may or may not be. And I think this is definitely happening with, with Harry Potter comparative to Lord of the Rings. So back to this question about racism in Lord of the Rings. This is a really fascinating question. And why are we even asking this question? Were people asking this question when the books came out? That would be a really interesting thing to dive into. And I don't know the, the details of that. Sandra and I had, um, I think, a really good back and forth about this because I think the article points out that Tolkien himself was very anti-fascist. I mean, he wrote this as a response to what happened in World War II. So to think that you would also simultaneously call Tolkien fa uh, racist, not just fascist, but racist, because obviously anti-fascist, but to say that he's racist, seems like an over overstepping the bounds of what was really going on there. Um, I think that the problem is we don't see a lot of representation in Tolkien's work. And, and, and Sandra talked a lot about that. She talked about there's a, there's really, I mean, I don't even know if I can think of any uh, people of color who we see in The Lord of the Rings. So, of course, that could be better. We'd like to see more representation in all of our stories. 
Uh, it makes a lot of sense to have representation. It, it makes the stories more applicable to more people. In fact, I was hanging out with Justin Weaver yesterday, and one of the things that he told me was, if you look at the box office from the more recent big blockbuster movies, the films that have been uh, big box, have done big box office where people paid to go see the films, a lot of those films have had more diverse casts. Um, which is just instrumental in the fact that we we desire that I think as as audiences we we want to see complexity in our stories we want to see exactly what's going on and 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 explore these things together through storytelling and therefore I think it makes a lot of sense for the films themselves to be more um, diverse I I so Sandra was pointing out that some people could watch these films. And due to a lack of representation, and maybe even due to some of some of the portrayals. Now, I, see, I don't. This is where I. I'll, I'll get to my opinion in a minute. But due to some of the portrayals, people might see them, see the films, and say, "Well, first of all, I'm not included. But if I am included, what am I exactly included as? And am I included because I uh, that I um, somehow uh, see myself in one of the more negative aspects of the film? Now." As a now, I don't. I'm white male. Okay, so I don't look at these films and think that Tolkien is making any sort of commentary on race uh, in these films at all. I do think he's talking about nationality to a, to an extent because he's. I think his ultimate message is we need to band together to defeat evil and to defeat things like fascism. I think that's ultimately because I mean that's what he was watching in World War II. He was watching fascism occur and he was reacting to that, right? So I, I think that I don't think at all that he was intending to be um to paint any races or ethnicities into a bad place. He just didn't he wasn't very inclusive though either. Um so I would argue that for the people who are watching the film and feeling like it might be racist, um, I would argue that it isn't, and I would argue that we should have a conversation about it. Because let's, let's face it, one of the things that Sandra and I basically are in complete agreement on, and we are in um, complete support of together, is that the issue is, let's get more representation in films, and let's have more deeper discussions about what's going on. I think um, what we don't want to do is we don't want to uh, unfairly criticize creators. A fair criticism is that there's no representation. An unfair criticism, in my perspective, uh, is that it's racist. Because I think you're adding something to the film that isn't there. Or you're adding something to the books that actually does not occur. So that's unfair. What is fair is to say there's not as much representation. That seems fair to me. Um, beyond that, let's make it a conversation. And if you feel like you're seeing yourself in this film and portrayed negatively, then I want to talk to you about that because I don't. I, uh, I first of all, if that's in the film, then I want to be able to say that it's wrong too. I don't see that in the film, and so therefore I'm going. Okay, well, let's have a conversation because maybe one of us can change our perspective and then and then grow in that. So that that's my thing. So let's do, let's do that. That's what we do on this podcast all the time. So let's continue to do those kinds of things. Um. Uh, one of the things that Justin pointed out was he really enjoyed the fact that uh, Gimli and Legolas's friendship uh, was considered sort of a like the dwarves and the elves don't don't uh, mesh together, right? But at the end of the film, they're best friends, 
and that at the end of the three films that they're best friends and that that that's a really cool message of uh, more inclusion um which of course that's a good example as well i think one of the things that we would be we would want to analyze more is that i don't think tolkien intended to make the elves the orcs the dwarves different ethnicities or different races i think that's a key element that that um most people who who look into most scholars most most isn't it crazy that that, that tolkien has scholars i don't know that, that there will ever be anybody that goes there's a jay shear scholar for jay shear's writing but maybe maybe someday there will be but um these tolkien scholars will normally say that the elves are more a representation of angelic beings or angels and that the uh, orcs are more of a representation of demons or demonic figures. So it doesn't have anything to do with nationality or, or ethnicity. It has more to do with uh, spiritual beings and that, and that type of um, assessment. Uh, Mary says, I don't think he was a racist, but I also know the world was very different back then. To judge him based on today's lens is unfair, and unfortunately everything is problematic, racist, fascist these days. That's true too, and that's why I want to. Say, that's, that's that's the reason why I want to say like let's have the discussion, because I have had this experience myself where I have thought to myself, oh well, that's just a thing that happens, and whatever it is, take you know, I'll just say take concern A, <laughs> exhibit A, concern A, and I'll say like, oh, I don't have a concern about that. That seems fine, and then I'll have a friend of mine um, talk to me about it and say, oh, actually, one of the things that I think is a bit disconcerting about this is this element or that element and i'll go oh okay i didn't realize that was being seen as a negative but now that you have encouraged me to look at that i go oh yeah yeah, yeah. okay i can see how that would be a problem um and i think that those conversations are really valuable because we can't we can't assume first of all we're all ignorant in some way shape or form Right. No, nobody has all access to all the wisdom and all the knowledge that appears in the world. That's impossible. And so uh, to, to assume that I am not ignorant on a vast number of topics is to overestimate my uh, my knowledge of the world or the information that I have at my fingertips. And when I think about that, I think in terms of, OK, well, my experiences have led me to believe certain things. Other people's experiences have led them to believe different things. If I had had their experience, would I see the world a little bit differently? And the answer has got to be yes to that question. I'll give you a really good example. I didn't even tell this story on the uh, on the podcast with Justin and Sandra, but this is a really good example because it changed my perspective of something. I was uh, going for a run one night. I was much younger. This is probably 15 years ago. I went for a run in my neighborhood. My neighborhood at the time where I was living was very suburban, very Caucasian, very um, wealthy. It was it was an interesting place. So I was going for this run, and um, I now I'm going to give you uh, I'm going to give you the, the story. Then I'm going to add one other element to it that um, that is a little bit of a wrinkle, but we'll get there in a minute. I go for my run. Uh, just down the street. It's a super quiet street. I pass uh, a, a husband and wife walking a dog. I pass a family. This is, it's dark out. It's dark out, but I believe it was the spring or summer. So I was in shorts and a t-shirt and running shoes. And um, 
a police officer in a police car drives by me. Okay, we see we see police officers now and again. That's fine. Um, but he drives by again, and the second time he drives by, he pulls over, shines the light his light on me. I'm in the middle of a run, so he pulls up ahead of me because obviously I'll run just right past him. And he shines the light on me and kind of stops. So I stop running and I'm like, "Hey, what's going on?" And he says, uh, "He says he he fortunately he he turned the light off." Um, and he goes, uh, "Hey, you see anybody suspicious around here? See anybody suspicious around here?" I go, "No." <laughs> I saw some people walking a dog. They seemed pretty nice to me. I didn't see anything that uh, made me concerned at all. He's like, "You sure you didn't see anything? Anybody that's suspicious around here?" No man, I'm just on, I'm much out for a run. I haven't been out here for that long. Uh, don't know don't know what you're talking about. He's like, okay. Gets back in his car, drives down the road a little bit. I keep running. Of course, everyone that sees him pull me over is like looking at me like, what did you do? I'm like, I'm just going for a run. You gotta be kidding. Um, anyways, he pulls back over and he goes, Hey, are you sure you haven't seen anything? And I'm like, uh, dude, I don't know what you want me to tell you. Like, I literally just came from my house. I just live right up, right down the street, and I am going for a run. So I do not understand why this is even occurring. What's going on? What are you hearing? And he goes, um, and by the way, he's being, I'm not trying to paint him in a negative light. Um, he was not being rude to me. Um, I, I would not say he was being rude to me. I've, I've had police officers, I've had, I mean, everyone be rude to me, but uh, he was not being rude to me at this time. And he goes, well, we got a call that a person who fits your description um, was suspicious and we needed to check them out. And then he gives me the description. He goes, they described a male Hispanic, about six feet tall uh, with no shirt on. And then he pulled around one last time, by the way, and, and said to me, like, oh, yeah, they did call on you. So it was me that they called them. The, the, whoever saw me called the police on me um, at, and then described me in that way. So how did this uh, change my perspective on the world? That's the, that's the question. This is getting back to Lord of the Rings. Like, dude, you're telling a personal story. What are you talking about? It's getting back to Lord of the Rings. I had not experienced that element of what a person of color might experience. I am not... Hispanic. I was not, by the way, running without a shirt on. I had a shirt on the whole time. And so the third thing is none of those things are illegal. None of those things are illegal. Like, like running, you can run. You, you can be Hispanic running. You can be Hispanic running without a shirt on. The cops should not pull you over. That's What is that about? The one wrinkle to this story was, I will admit that I did, um, I used to hop the fence all the time because we had a gate. I'm telling you, this was a nice neighborhood. Um, <laughs> I don't live in this kind of place now. Uh, I was living with my parents. I would jump over the gate. And so I can see someone saying like, okay, well, that was kind of suspicious behavior. But what I was told was, you're suspicious because of these criteria. Those criteria were not something to be suspicious of. That was completely unfair. Gave me a completely different perspective on what it meant to put myself in that person's shoes because I was not doing anything wrong. What I was being accused of was not wrong, and yet the police were pulling me over. Now, why is that bad? Well, the police are pulling me over. Other people are seeing that, and now I now I have a I have a little bit of like, well, I hope they don't think I'm a bad guy, right? So because I've had that experience, I think it's important that we 
gather the experiences of others, I realize that's a really mild experience. I, by the way, I acknowledge that that's a super mild experience, but I had not had an experience like that uh, in the past. And so therefore, uh, it made me see things differently because I got a different perspective. So let's have those conversations. Let's have the conversation that looks like, what is your experience like? Because this is what my experience is like. Um, so there you go. Moving on to the next question. Uh, Middle Earth is rich in its world building. Tolkien's writing made it rich. And then Peter Jackson and his team brought all of that to life visually in the films. So what are the locations? What do those locations represent to you? We have the Shire. We have Rohan. We have Gondor. We have Mordor. Do the locations themselves have significance? So the question I'm asking you guys today, if you look at the Shire, Rohan, Gondor, Mordor, any of the other locations that the hobbits or the characters in the film find themselves, do those, they're really rich in world building, but do they, do they also have other significance to them? One of the things I really liked what Sandra said uh, that I think is really true is that the Shire is like home. You know, the Shire, when we see the Shire, it, it actually amazes me from a storytelling standpoint how long Tolkien talks about the Shire or, or, or Peter Jackson showcases the Shire. We see the Shire for like a good, what, 15 to 20 minutes worth of screen time um, in Act 1. The time where we're still setting up the story, they're still in the Shire. They haven't even left the Shire. And there's, you know, there's not a lot of, that's happening there that's super, super negative at first. So the fact that we're still um, fascinated with it is really telling us to Peter Jackson's uh, ability to tell stories in this way. Um, and Sandra's right, it does feel like home. Uh, now I had said that it felt like home because it felt like it felt like the term shalom, which means everything is as it should be. That's what kind of the Shire feels like to me. Everything as it should be. Everybody's uh, a great community. Obviously, there's a little infighting here and there, and there's a little bitterness here and there, and that kind of thing. But it's, it's a very it's green. There's me there are meadows. There there are streams. People uh, there's no scarcity. People have what they need. It, and I think Sandra's point was that's all awesome, and she makes a really good point. But it's also some somewhat negative because they are innocent for sure. They're at home, but also they're not taking the bigger picture of the world into consideration. And they are living apart from. They have uh, distanced themselves. It's like I was just talking about like with uh, living behind a gate. That's a different deal if you live behind a gate. All of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. Uh, I'm not letting other people in, right? The, the Shire kind of feels like that kind of place. But it does also feel like home. It feels like a, like a very... Um, a very, what would I call it? Uh, peaceful, nice place to be with lots of friends and family around you, you know? Um, then we talked a little bit about uh, the representation of the hero's journey and going constantly, this is Justin's comment, how we constantly move from one land to another and each land presents new danger as we get closer and closer to Mordor. And also the hero's journey of this innocent person exposing themselves to more and more of the world and learning to be less and less naive. And I think all of that was really, really good. I think what's fascinating to me about the way that Tolkien tells these three stories and these, this one long story really when it comes down to it, and Peter Jackson as well, is that he gives us, he constantly ups the ante until the climax of the film. Because we go from a location that seems incredibly peaceful 
to a location that seems a little less peaceful to a look that has like maybe some evil in it because the Nazgul have been, have are coming after the hobbits. Right. But the, the land itself is not inherently bad. It's just that they're the Nazgul are after them to then looking at Rohan and seeing Rohan is a little bit worse because Wormtongue is affecting Theoden and Sander talked about that a little bit as well. Um, and then seeing Gondor, which is run by a madman who's losing it. And right next to Gondor is Mordor. Um, but I think there are also some similarities that I think work themselves into Lord of the Rings in regards to, you know, Rohan is almost more like the rural area where how are how are people who live in rural areas dealing with uh, ultimate evil and the temptations of daily life versus Gondor and Gondor being a center of commerce and what you would see is more like an urban center. Right. And so Gondor looks a little bit more like that. So the comparison is what are the rural people doing and what are the what are the city folks doing and what's the difference between them? And I think that the, the interaction feels pretty true to life there as well, because Rohan is kind of like, we're not even sure we're gonna show up for Mordor. <laughs> you know, they they've got a whole different thing going on there and they don't seem to care about us. And how often do we hear those things, right? Like we hear those things even today when we talk about the electoral college and how the electoral college works. You can even you can even look at Lord of the Rings and see that there are elements of what's going on there. And it's be, it's not because it's a commentary on that. It's because uh, Tolkien and of course Peter Jackson as well have done such an amazing job of looking at things in such a realistic way. So I think we can find a lot of cool things just if, just looking at the the lands alone, which is which is really awesome. Uh, I got a couple more questions here. Um, this one is so so if, if uh, before I I'm going to jump into this question, but if you want to give um, you know what your thoughts of the various lands are, feel free and put those into the comments, and I will I'll get to those as well. But uh, moving into the next question, in this epic battle against Sauron, different elements of the story are labeled evil. So what does evil mean in the context of this story? What makes something evil? So Sander talked about, again, this, this concept of having power to the point of corruption. And even if you have good intentions, um, you want to use the ring of power for good, uh, you would need to do evil first. And she also talked about, and I thought this was absolutely brilliant and very, very good insight, that evil is also isolation. Evil is all is a lot of times in the Lord of the Rings, it is isolated. You can see that Gollum is super isolated. So long, he's isolated for so long, he even forgets his own name. Um, the Ents even have, uh, there's, a, there's an element of evil, even in the forest. You see that a little bit in the forest, um, where the trees have isolated themselves, the ants have isolated themselves. And when they come back, they're heroic. But for a while there, the isolation was almost evil because they didn't want to do the right thing. They wanted to isolate and not have any action at all um, because it was a risk. There was a risk to them to do that. And so they isolated instead. Um, I, I would say that is so relevant to literally this day and time it is March 13th, Friday, Friday the 13th, by the way, in uh, in Los Angeles, California. It is raining outside. There is a coronavirus on the loose. Um, and we have we we have to isolate for this coronavirus, for this coronavirus. Um, and yet isolation can also turn into an evil thing because we can stop seeing other people as people that need help. And we can start seeing 
other people as people to that that it caused danger to us and that we need to be away from them. And I'm not saying there isn't truth to that. I'm not. Trust me. I'm not saying go out and you know go lick, lick don't go lick uh, uh, guide rails. Don't do that. Like, that's not a good idea. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't isolate to a degree. But when you do isolate, there are still ways to find connectedness, right? Um, join us on live shows. That's one way to connect with us. We would love to do that with you. But also connect on social media. Um, at a time when this virus is out there, it's going to cause a lot of anxiety. Um, I found myself being anxious as well, right? Like what's going to happen next? I'm not as anxious about the health concerns as I am about the economy. And that's that's probably pretty natural. But let's not isolate to the point where we stop being a community together, right? So that's just something for you guys. Hopefully you can interact with the Story Geeks on Facebook. Go to the Story Geeks Facebook group. Talk about the things that you're watching. Maybe you are isolating and you're watching a bunch of Netflix. I would love to hear what you're watching and why you like it and why that other people should invest time in it or not invest time in it. So let's have some of those online interactions at a time we can't really interact with one another. I think that'd be really cool. Justin talked about things that were touched by evil and touched by the ugliness of the world of this anti-beauty that I mentioned earlier that become almost physically ugly. So Smeagol's descent into Gollum is an example of this, right? Where the continued exposure to evil transforms someone. It's almost like what you might see in a Star Wars film, right? Where the dark side, a continual uh, exploration of the dark side can makes you basically transform into a less beautiful uh, person. So I think that that's really interesting. Um, Grima Wormtongue, he brings up, you can't trust Grima Worm, Wormtongue. The evil shows up because the lies that are inherent in what Wormtongue is doing. So Justin also brings up the fact that there are, that if someone wants to take freedom from someone else, that they're, that they're evil. And I think that that is the overarching theme of Lord of the Rings is that the people who want to lord over other people by by demanding that they follow their shared set of standards and especially a shared set of standards that um, creates less freedom for them to experience what they would like to experience. Uh, that is one of the ultimate evils that we see in Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely true. It's it's people who, in Lord of the Rings, evil is represented by not only, as Sandra mentions, those who don't take action or who see evil and don't take action and isolate, but also it is representative of people who, by definition, want their way to be the overarching way in which the world works. And so for... And you can imagine what that was like. You can imagine being Tolkien, having already written The Hobbit, and watching as Hitler, Mussolini, uh, Stalin, watching these men rise to power, observing the fact that their desire is fascist, uh, you, I guess you could call um, Stalin communist, but but certainly with shades of fascism as well, in this desire for power over other people and their desire to say, your way of living is no longer the way that you should live. You need to live in our way of living. And you can imagine Tolkien sitting at his typewriter. I was almost at computer, but obviously there was no such thing. Um, sitting at his typewriter thinking like, what kind of characters do that? What kind of evil exists where that would, where that would occur? 
one of the answers that I had to this question too was the the concept of the evil that you see and the evil that you don't see. So there are there are many of us would believe that there are things that we don't see that happen that are evil. And yet there are things that are very blatant that we see in front of us that are also evil. And so you can look at that that Mordor and, and the fact that Sauron is behind the gates of Mordor and we can't see him. And yet he is the ultimate evil and he's influencing all of these things versus you might look at Saruman and it's like, oh, he's obviously evil. He's tearing up the forest. He's building an army of orcs. He's not trying to hide it from anybody, right? And so this concept of integrity and what lies both in us Right, we we don't know what lies in Boromir, but he ultimately wants the ring so much that he almost hurts Frodo to get it from him, and then realizes that he lacked integrity in that moment, and it's really damaging to him to the point where he goes and actually redeems himself because he sacrifices uh, himself uh, in order to protect the hobbits. So, really fascinating stuff, I think, from Tolkien. But where do you see evil in Lord of the Rings? What is labeled as evil, and what makes it evil? If you want to leave that in the comments, I will read any of the comments that you submit to me. By the way, if um, you catch this show later and you're not with me live, like Mary, and I think Jim is in there too, um, and a couple of others, and some that have passed through from time to time, if if you are going to listen to this later, feel free and leave comments uh, in the Facebook group. I keep mentioning the Facebook group. It's totally free to join the Facebook group. Just go on to Facebook, search for The Story Geeks, and um, you can leave thoughts uh, and ideas there. or you can become a VIP member, and I, uh, if you leave me some of the thoughts there, I can um, share those thoughts on a future podcast as well. So some, another way to do that, which is kind of cool. Gandalf gives us a couple glimpses into what the afterlife looks like in Middle-earth. At, the, uh, at Theodred's funeral, he tells Theoden, he was strong in life. His spirit will find its way into the halls of your fathers. Gandalf also talks to Pippin saying, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray curtain of this world ro rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it, white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Gandalf also dies and comes back to life. What can we put together about the afterlife from these pieces? Do you think this is how Tolkien viewed reality or is this just part of the fantasy? So this is a, this is a, um, Justin came up with this question. It's a fantastic question, Justin, great job. And I think that death in Lord of the Rings is a really fascinating concept because I don't, I think that Tolkien is basically suggesting that death is not the end. Multiple characters come, either come back, including Sauron, by the way. Sauron isn't ultimately killed. He is um, vanquished for a time. But yeah, I think if you look around uh, the Lord of the Rings universe, um, many of the characters either come back, they are not fully dead, they're still living. Like For example, the, the men under the mountain that Aragorn has to go get and help him fight off other people. So this concept of afterlife is really interesting. And, and one of the things that, uh, I can't remember the exact line, it's in my notes somewhere, but one of the things that I pointed out too is just this, this element that comes with Lord of the Rings and death relative to, um, relative to how, what death is. And, and how we define death, right? And one of the things I think is 
true about Lord of the Rings, by the way. Don't worry, Mary. I, you can you can listen in and not make comments. Um, uh, Mary just mentioned that uh, her boss is actually making her work, so she can't comment as much. <laughs> no worries, no worries. We don't want to interrupt people's work. We just want to be here for you um, so that you can enjoy it, enjoy a show. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting about Lord of the Rings is, and, and a concept that I've been thinking a lot about over uh, the last decade probably, um, and it's the concept of, I grew up in a home where, where you, where you would look at death as there, that there was an afterlife, but there was like a choice between afterlifes and one afterlife was like super great. And the other, uh, the other afterlife was super negative. So you might look at and term them heaven and hell, right? One afterlife is like a good thing that you want to experience. The other one is a, is a terrible thing that you wouldn't want to experience. And a lot of times when we think about hell, we think about hell in the context of um, fire, uh, darkness, torture. A lot of that comes from, ironically, a lot of that does not come from the Bible, which is where a lot of that imagery was, was interpreted from. Uh, it uses the Bible uses metaphors that that obviously made artists throughout the Renaissance and throughout uh, the Dark Ages even develop works of art that we would come to understand as hellish. In fact, I'm looking at and that's continued to this day. I'm looking in the, I'm in the studio, my studio right now, and I'm looking at an Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom poster. <laughs> if you look at that poster, you know that's like a poster that it would say like, oh yeah, it looks like there's some elements of hell in that poster. Um, and I, I mean, when I say that, I mean this fire and brimstone place where people are tortured constantly, right? I think, though, that in Tolkien's um, world that he's developing, I think that there's a slightly more complex definition of what hell is. And I actually have come to understand from my personal studies that this is likely what, even when the Bible refers to hell, it's, it's, it's more of what hell is. And that is... Hell is sort of when we let humans take over with their will. So when I get my will and I live into an unadulterated Jay wants what Jay gets what Jay wants, then that is sort of the place that I would define as hell, right? It's not not no longer a higher powers um, governance of my life or where my life should go, but rather, it is my it is my life. Almost as if like if we were to let survival of the fittest run rampant, um, that would be a pretty ugly thing to have happen, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I feel like that would happen. Like, right? It'd be a pretty ugly situation if we were to let survival of the fittest um, be the predominant belief system that every human being had. And I would be shocked if we didn't decimate each other over that over that concept. Um, a small microcosm of that is like buying too much toilet paper during this coronavirus outbreak, people. Don't do that. Don't do that. Buy as much as you need. <laughs> don't buy, don't buy more than that. Um, but again, survival of the fittest, right? Like we, uh, if I go into uh, a mindset that is, um, I want what I want and by definition, other people will have to hurt for that. In that in my opinion, is what creates hell. If you think about World War II and the hellacious nature of what occurred there, it is because people wanted their will over other people. Um, and by the way, uh, it's it's an example of in Lord of the Rings when they put on the ring. Um, look at what happens to Gollum. He he starts living out a personal hell on Earth. And so I, that's one of the comments that I made um, is that I think that Lord of the Rings does a really fascinating dive into 
what it looks like to live in hell and hell being so so this 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 concept of um there is afterlife there is something beyond there is the i don't remember what what short the shores of whatever where elrond and his elvish crew are, are going to and obviously uh bilbo and, and frodo go with him at the end there um, that's the afterlife for them right the middle earth is is the life and the afterlife is this paradise of sorts but if you choose to continue living in your desired state and especially if you have the ring of power and you make yourself god then you are ultimately living in your own hell and i think that's a really fascinating concept now sandra brought up the point that um tolkien was a catholic and so you see you could argue that like the the men under the mountain the ghost army that aragorn goes to get you could argue that that w was an example of more of like a um, purgatory type of example where there's this state that does that exists outside of heaven and hell that is um and, and I'm not a uh, I'm not a Catholic scholar, so uh, I would not be able to tell you exactly the ins and outs of what purgatory looks like or how purgatory works. I didn't necessarily see it that way. I think it's a really uh, really great insight from Sandra. I I didn't necessarily see it that way because I saw it more as the men under the mountain were still clinging to the their own. They were not accepting of, of the grace that was available to them. They were still living in their self-consumed nature of this is what we want. We refuse to serve anyone else. And it wasn't until they chose to give up their own. Um, it wasn't until they chose to give up their own desires and follow Aragorn that they that they were freed and were able to enter afterlife. So I still think that the other metaphor that I mentioned is could still be applicable. I do think that what Sandra is saying is very insightful, and it may even be the way that uh, the way that Tolkien was was viewing that. But I think that there's another filter that we could run on it that looks a little bit different. So I just throw it out there for consideration for your consideration. But again, let us know what you think. Um, last question today also came from at Woopert123 on Twitter. So, so guys, follow us on Twitter because you can submit questions to us there or in the Facebook group too. Uh, this is a great question. We all had a good time discussing this one too. The central question faced by all the characters in The Lord of the Rings, from the elves to the hobbits, Tom Bombadil and the Ents, is whether to involve themselves in a conflict that could destroy them. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's such a good question because it's this concept of you know do i leave the shire do do i become the ring bearer the fellowship uh has to decide am i going to legolas has to decide am i going to go with uh elrond and find myself in a different land or am i going to fight for the future of middle earth um even elrond himself yeah he elrond does want to go to the other shores but uh, based on arwen um and her perspective, um, he's sort of fighting this battle of how how much do I stay here and, and help fight off what is coming from Mordor? How much is that do I owe to that to that process? So, um, really interesting question. So appreciate you submitting the question at Woopert one two three on Twitter. Um, Justin talked about it bringing up two additional questions for him, and those being when should someone get involved if it doesn't directly involve them. And, you know, the gaffer in the Shire mentions, keep your nose out of trouble and no trouble will come to you. And Pippin says to the Ents, you know, you're part of this world. You need to help us help us with this. And that is a delicate balance, right? Like, when do we get involved? And I remember um, Sandra talked about 
Sandra had some really good insights on this, I felt like, because she talked about um, sometimes our mode of operation is not so much to, or should not be so much to confront the people doing the wrong thing, but rather should be to comfort and be kind to the people who uh, experienced the bad thing. So she gave a really good example of this. She said like, just imagine you're in line at Starbucks and the guy, the guy in front of you like verbally is super rude to the to the cashier, the person taking the order. Well, you could, you know, talk to the to the person that made the order and say like, hey, what's wrong with you? Why are you being so rude? Like, get a life. Or you could comfort the uh, the cashier and actually treat them even better than, than the person did before. Well, obviously, you should treat it better, but you know, like even even more so than you normally would. Um, and I think that's a really good insight because I think we can, uh, I think what she was pointing out and what I agree with, and I would not have answered the question this way, but, I, but picking up on her answer, um, there is, there is a time to stand up to blatant evil and to address it. But a lot of times I think that we come from, we put on our combat gear when we go out into the world. Um, and I, I'll give you the example myself. I, uh, my Myers-Briggs profile is ESTJ, ESTJ. Now ESTJ's profile labeled by some of the labels that are out there is the guardian. And so I have a tendency <laughs> to want to, when I see something happen, I have a tendency to want to like instantly rise up and be like, no, 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 I'm guarding this. I'm, I'm, you can't do that. What do you, what do you think you're doing? What I've realized is that that is usually only best as a last resort. Because think of the guy, the person who's in line. Let me take a sip of my water here. One second. It's harder when you're on the podcast all by yourself <laughs> because then you kind of try and talk the whole time. <coughs> so um, think of the, the person in line. Maybe had a really bad day. Maybe someone treated them really rudely right before they walked into order from Starbucks. You won't know that when you're in line behind them. And so for you to think, oh, I'm, I need to step in and defend the cashier, <coughs> maybe there's a time and a place for that. But but also, maybe it's just that that person actually needs their own compliment. Maybe, maybe that person is actually a really good person. They're just having a really bad day. Maybe the person who I've already derided you know, on this podcast for buying too much toilet paper is really just way too anxious and needs to like chill out a little bit. And if you had a conversation with them and said, do you really need that much toilet paper? Cause I mean, like there's some other people that need toilet paper. Maybe that person would completely change their perspective. So I think that Sandra's advice is really, really helpful. I think in general, uh, what she's suggesting is that we should help the people in need more often than we deride the people who are committing the rude or unacceptable behavior. And I felt like that was a really good um, insight from Sandra, and I really agree with that. So, shout out to Sandra for that. And you know, I think it is up to us to get involved in solving conflicts. But one of the things I've noticed too that I disagree with is like how everyone has a different perspective, and those perspectives are usually pretty nuanced. Uh, I I will share that I very rarely um, believe in the approach that is advocated for by either of the most popular political parties here in the United States. And so when I see people on Twitter who are like, oh, if you don't get involved in my political party, then you're the problem. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, 
do you realize how many problems that that political party is also creating for people? Like, I don't think your perspective is is as as inclusive as it should be. So I do think that there is a time, I think we should all get involved in solving the world's problems. I don't think we're all called to solving the same problem. Sometimes we are. Right now, the entire world is called to solving the coronavirus problem because it literally affects all of us. And there are different, uh, you know, uh, global warming, for example, uh, climate change. The fact that uh, the earth is warming up. That's a problem that we all face. So like, I, I, some problems are all of ours to deal with. But then there are other problems that not all of us are called to. And there's no way for the entire human race to take on every single problem. That's just not possible. So I do think that there is a time and place for us to get involved um, and, and, and look at where we're at where we can help other people and how we can help other people. And for some of us, it's going to look like, you know, helping those who are experiencing homelessness. That's a really big problem in the Los Angeles area right now. Um, for others of us, that might be like adopting kids or, or fostering kids because orphans need support as well. So it just kind of depends on what it is that you are called to and how you can help. Mary says, uh, but our sense of panic says a ton about the true state of our faith. That is absolutely true as well. If, if you experience a situation where you know that injustice has occurred or that something bad is happening, that you can actually take a step back and say like, okay, what is my role in this? And how should I emotionally respond, spiritually respond, physically respond? And if you do lean into some spiritual perspectives, then I think that that's really, really, really valuable. Uh, Mary also says we need to trust God as sovereign, but that doesn't exempt us from being his hands and feet here. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Just because you have a spiritual perspective doesn't mean you can also retreat. And that would be like the example of the ants, right? The ants um, believe in a better world, but the ants don't aren't prompted into action until they, they see that the forests are being decimated and that they see that it's not going to stop with Saruman. It's going to continue even into the future with Sauron. Um, and then today had to step in. So a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, I really wish that you guys could have heard the original podcast because I really wish you could have heard Sandra and Justin talk out of their own voices as opposed to talking out of mine. I'm sure I said things on their behalf that they would have reworded. So I apologize for that in the beginning. But since that podcast was lost and since I could not reschedule with Sandra and Justin, I still wanted to get this content in here. Like I said, it was one of the best discussions that we have had on the podcast that I have personally had. I found a, I got a lot of re rewarding um, feeling from it and I wanted to bring at least some microcosm of that to you even if I had to do it by myself but I'm glad that Mary has been here with me I know Jim is here as well I'm glad you guys joined in um, so uh, this this podcast will hit the main feed so if you didn't hear it live then you're probably listening to it now in the main feed otherwise you probably don't even know it exists and that's fine too <laughs> however it works that is it for today's show. Special thanks again to Mary and Jim for joining me on the podcast today and making some very insightful comments. Special thanks also to Sandra and Justin for joining me for the original podcast and for giving me their notes so that I could go back over some of the discussion that we had. It was a fantastic discussion. Sandra even said that she, she got misty-eyed at several points in time and I was getting fired up at different points in time. It was just really good. It was a really good podcast. Hope that we had a little bit of those elements today as you just heard me ramble on and tell <laughs> crazy stories. Coming next week on the Story Geeks podcast, it's going to be the end of our Lord of the Rings series, and we are going to uh, move into... So you're hearing this out of order. Because that, because that show failed, 
we were supposed to go with the religion of Lord of the Rings, which is this podcast, and then the characters in Lord of the Rings. But that got all mixed up. So these are all coming out at a kind of different times. But we are moving on from Lord of the Rings. We're going to be moving into Universal Monsters because we had um, because we had the Invisible Man come out. We're going to be moving into, an, into a Universal Monsters uh, podcast. So you, we wanted to check that out. I'm also thinking about, this is something you can give me your perspective on. If you want to join the Story Geeks uh, Facebook group, just search Facebook for the Story Geeks. It's free to join. I would like to hear your perspective on this. It sounds like we're all going to get locked down. And it sounds like we're all going to be watching a lot of Netflix and a lot of Disney Plus and a lot of geek stuff on those channels, probably some other channels as well. Uh, do you want us to kind of more focus our attention on what appears on those streaming channels? Because it seems like that if we're all going to be watching these things together, that could be a good outlet for us to talk about all of them. Um, together. So if you want that to happen, definitely uh, shoot me an email, go to the Facebook group, just let me know some of the things that you want to see um, in there. Jim will definitely do the uh, Universal Monsters, so don't worry about that. Going to work on some classic sci-fi movies as well. If you, In fact, Jim, if you find any classic sci-fi movies on Disney Plus or on Netflix, definitely uh, let us know about that because that would be a good, if we're all going to be isolated and watching the same things, let's at least have a conversation about that. So don't miss any of our upcoming shows. Subscribe today on your preferred podcast provider. And remember, you can join the Story Geeks Facebook group, uh, which we call the Story Geeks Club, for free. The link to the club is in the show notes. And if you join as a VIP member, which Jim and Mary both are, we'll prioritize your questions and comments here on our live shows. Plus, higher tier members get to join us as guests. You just need to let me know what show you want to be on. And we'll try and get you on that show. Learn more about all of those things at thestorygeeks.com. Thanks for listening in, and as always, question everything in your favorite geek stories, and always seek the truth. Special thanks to all the members of the Story Geeks Club. Here are the awesome supporters who support us at $5 a month or more. Adam Vargas, Bob Sherfield, who, by the way, just upgraded to the Cosmic Heroes tier. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate you. Justin Weaver, who just upgraded to one of our donation tiers, which is awesome. Thank you so much, Justin. Mary Baldwin, who I've already mentioned before because she joined us here. She just said, thanks, Jay. Well, thank you, Mary. I appreciate you. Wade Johnson, Jim Baldwin, who's also here. Thanks you, Jim. Monty Thigpen, who also upgraded to one of the donation tiers. Thank you, Monty. Uh, Nick Prokop, and all brand new member, Kimberly Lugeau. Brand new member, came in as a cosmic hero. Thank you, Kimberly. We appreciate you. And finally, Connie Mo. We appreciate all the members of the Story Geeks Club, even those we haven't mentioned by name. If you would like to support the show by joining the Story Geeks Club and signing up for one of our VIP tiers, please head over to thestorygeeks.com.